0: Hi everybody, I'm Liz Nord, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. If there's one thing you can be sure of about your next film production, it's that it won't go down exactly like the last one. This is especially true in documentaries, where there are generally even more unknowns and elements out of your control than in narratives. So how do you prepare for and navigate these unpredictabilities while trying to successfully fundraise, shoot, edit, finish, and distribute a really great film? My guest today can help answer that complex question, with more than three decades of combined experience under their belts. Director and producer Geet de has been nominated for three Emmy Awards and has won two, as well as working professionally as an editor on such acclaimed titles as Oscar-winning O.J. Made in America director and producer Shanda Shavanis is an award-winning documentarian as well as a film instructor at Centennial College in Toronto, and director and producer Chris Metzler is a prolific documentarian known for cult favorite docs like the John Waters narrated Plagues and Pleasures on the Salton Sea, which won over 30 Best Doc Awards and was broadcast on the Sundance Channel. In our conversation today, we cover an A to Z of documentary production and discuss what a successful producer's role is at every stage of a film's life. To do so, we draw on my guests' extensive experiences and dig into case studies on three of their current films that recently screened at America's largest documentary film festival, Doc NYC. I think you'll get a lot out of this detailed primer on how to get a documentary made and out into the world. I'd love to start just by having you each introduce yourselves, your films, and your roles in it.
1: So my name is Gita Gandbir and I am the co-director and co-producer of a film called Armed with Faith that is playing at Doc NYC this week.
2: My name is Shanda Shivanis and I'm the producer and director of a documentary called Unfractured, which is also at Doc NYC this week.
3: And hi, I'm uh, Chris Metzler. I'm a co-director and co-producer with uh, my colleagues uh, Quinn Costello and Jeff Springer. And we did an offbeat environmental documentary, Rodents of Unusual Size, that's at Doc NYC also.
0: So as people can probably tell just by the titles, the films are wildly diverse. And I think um, one of the only things they have in common is that there's passion behind them and they're playing at Doc NYC and they're done. Wow. Which is huge. And that's kind of kind of what this show is going to be about today is how do you go from that A to Z because every film gets made differently. But first things first, um, I'd love for you to just uh, let us know a little bit about what the films are about. So we can go the opposite way. You want to start, Chris?
3: Uh, Yeah, sure. Our uh, documentary, Rodents of Unusual Size, is a documentary about this invasive species, the Nutria. They're these uh, 20-pound rats in Louisiana. And it's a story about how they're eating up the coastline of the state and how communities are coming together to fight back these giant rats. It's kind of an offbeat comedy, um, but a documentary about um, all the different ways that the state has kind of embraced um, um, this kind of invasion of these giant rats.
2: Unfractured Unfractured um, is a featured doc following a woman named Sandra Steingraber. She's an ecologist and a mother, and she reinvents herself as an outspoken activist to go head-to-head with the oil and gas industry, which she's fighting for is a ban on fracking in New York. And everyone tells her she can't win, and she says, well, we can, but the way that we do it is we go all in. So all our time, all our money, all our energy. Um, but then in the middle of everything, her husband starts having strokes, and she has to decide whether she's going to keep fighting or whether she's going to come home and take care of her husband.
1: And I'm going to give a little spoiler, which is that it does have a happy ending. That's important. <laughs> That's important. That's an important spoiler. Um, so my film is called Armed with Faith, and it is about a Pakistani bomb disposal unit that is operating in the north of Pakistan. They essentially are reactionary to the Taliban. And what is really interesting about the film is that these men who are part of the Pakistani police are from the same communities as the Taliban. They are from the as as they say there the, the tribal areas. And the so the people that they are battling are often people that they know it's their community, but um and they share the same religion and the same traditions, but the men of the unit have chosen democracy. They um they believe that that what the Taliban is doing is wrong. And so it's this really interesting film where you you have a perspective from the inside. And we've been told that it is essentially we've been told by people here, we premiered at Sheffield that it is. The Pakistani Hurt Locker, which is a comparison I would not have made, <laughs> but uh, but if it's if, you know if it makes it easy for people to follow, that's fine.
0: I'm processing that idea a little bit. Um, it's funny now that I hear you each describe your films. There's this other kind of thread of like community activism, and I guess in order to make uh, films that get audiences passionate, um, the people in our films have to be passionate too. So I think one thing that is very um, ambiguous in the doc world more than maybe in the narrative world is just starting brass tacks. What is a doc producer? What does a doc producer do? What's their primary role in your opinions?
1: So I would say a documentary producer... I find um, it's interesting. I started in narrative and I felt like the producers in narratives had very set roles that were very, you know, left brain, right brain, as far as the director and producer. The director is the creative. The producer is the business. And I think in documentary that is, uh, you know. Uh, the foundation of the role, but I think ultimately in documentary it blends a lot. I find that the producers producers that I've worked with um, often also have a lot of creative input into the film. Also, too, we often, as documentary filmmakers, particularly if we're making independent films and not commissioned films that already have um, a, a venue behind them, such as an HBO or a Netflix, if you're making an, an independent film that you're funding yourself, you are also often doing both roles. So I think um, the, you know, the documentary producer is a, is a much more flexible term. Um, often they're in the field with you. Like I said, they're, they're helping watch cuts, they're raising money, they're man- managing the budget. That's what that's been my experience.
0: And that's kind of what I was getting at with this idea that a doc producing role might be a little more amorphous or ambiguous. What do you guys think?
3: And I've been lucky enough to have kind of some long-term collaborators um, where we uh, frequently kind of uh, direct together and kind of then divide up the tasks. Um, and often I meet other documentary filmmakers that work solo, and they're just like, "Well, I want a partner uh, like one of you guys, or I want a producer." And then you say, "What is it that you want them to?" Do? Like, "Well, I want them to do all the things that I don't want to do." <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want them to kind of file things, I want them to make the phone calls, etc. And I think um, that's a very kind of um, kind of myopic way of looking at what a producer does because. As a producer is a, you know, a creative partner um, in the film, and I think um, there's a lot of overlap between what a director and a producer does um, in documentary filmmaking, uh, but I think that there's this bigger picture. Um, role that producers have in documentaries and in the way that they're liaison between lots of different parties. So in the sense that, um, they're taking a kind of a shared vision for the film and then working to communicate it with the outside world that could be, uh, tracking down, uh, subjects, you know, that could be, uh, you know, pitching the film and creating, you know, financing opportunities. Um, and then later on, uh, with marketing and publicity in the sense of, um, you know, reaching out to theaters or press, uh, etc., festivals. And so I think, you know, a producer is somebody that, um, you know, is there from the very beginning and whose responsibilities carry on, you know, many years, uh, even after the film's release. Whereas I think, um, you know, directors often, um, you know, once the film's kind of distributed or at least once it's been picked up, um, they're a little bit more kind of uh, hands off. And so I think that's why in the documentary world you find a lot of uh, directors who are also, um, you know, producers of their films.
2: It's interesting. I'm just thinking about this a little bit. I'm from Canada, uh, and so I'm wondering if the model is maybe a little bit different there, uh, because I think there is a a pretty clear division in the projects that I've worked on between what a producer does and what a director does. Um, And we talk about business producers, and then we also talk about um, creative producers. Sometimes the producer plays both roles. Sometimes they only play one um I myself produce and direct all my stuff. So there is that natural overlap. But I do feel like there's kind of two people warring inside me a little <laughs> bit, you know, uh, and the, the director always wins. So the producer always to, has to give in. Um, that's which, interesting.
0: I'm not sure that that's the case when it's two people.
2: No. And that I would so I would love to have a producer for that role um, and for that war because um, it's put me into some debt, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think that's that's sort of an expected thing with documentary film, unfortunately. And I think, I mean, I think one thing
3: maybe we can um, also split up is the idea that, you know, I think there's a difference between like a commission project and then, you know, what we might consider like an independent or passion project. And an independent passion project, I think, hopefully has the same goals in regards to, um, you know, budgeting and, you know, um, kind of later revenue streams and things. But with a commission project, I think um, – There's a lot more kind of expectations of what that producer's role is, and that's often to kind of keep things on schedule and budget and then also fit a creative vision of whatever that final outlet is that the film is. And um, I don't know about your guys' films, but I think often on the independent projects that uh, myself and my partners work on is that we don't have a specific outlet in mind when we first start out. We might have some – uh, might hope that it'll wind up on PBS or HBO or some other kind of independent cable channel um, or ways that we want to sell it around the world. But until the film kind of comes into its own, we really don't know where it's going to be. And I think, um, you know, part of the role of producer is to kind of um, help kind of create as many different opportunities for the film as possible so that when you're out there selling it, um, that you, you're not limited by um, you know, those options.
1: I I would agree with that and just to sort of build on it, I think, too, when in working with, you know, a, a distributor that's already, if you have a commissioned piece, there's also the, you know, the relationship to the studio that the producer has to negotiate, right? The studio would be an HBO or Netflix and you are essentially contracted to them for the product and the producer has to manage everything. Um, And the director as well, but the producer really has to manage everything, you know, is the liaison between the studio and, you know, the creative team. So So
0: how would you each categorize the films that we're talking about today on, on that balance of being a commissioned project or a passion or independent personal project?
3: Well, with Rodents of Unusual Size, it started out as an independent uh, passion project that uh, initially was funded by uh, some Kickstarter um, campaigns. Uh, Later on, um, grants. Uh, through um, you know, organizations like IDA's Pere Lawrence Fund and uh, the Berkeley Film Foundation. And then later in the process, we um, entered into a co-production agreement uh, with ITVS via their open call. And so at that point in time, the film had kind of gestated enough that we knew what it was and um, it matched up very well with ITVS. And so then they became our partners in kind of shepherding the film to what we're debuting uh, next week at Doc NYC.
2: Uh, with Unfractured, it was definitely a passion project funded by um, arts councils and foundations. And uh, so there's still no broadcaster attached. And we're just doing this festival circuit right now and trying to drum up some interest, which seems to be happening. So that's good.
1: <laughs> Great. I would say Armed with Faith was also a passion project. We had a very a lovely executive producer, Perry Peltz, who will be at our screenings. And she put in some initial, you know, small amount of funding um, for us to do development. And then we got a grant um, similarly from uh, Bertha Britt Dock. We received the journalism grant at IDFA, so that was very helpful. And then ITVS also came on board for our film. We showed them some material. They came on board, and ultimately the film will end up on PBS. So they, we have, um, you know, we sort of have gone through you know a process of negotiating that with them. But ITVs came on with the remainder of the funding. And again, that is um, I think it's one of the biggest challenges is is for us as documentary filmmakers because although it's there are the venues, the amount the number of venues to ultimately, you know air your film, are not uh, not huge right it's not as numerous it's that as uh, perhaps narrative so I think um, so that's part of the the trick of getting you know of making your film is also ultimately how you end up distributing and there's many creative ways to do it obviously but um, but actual broadcasters that come or distributors that come with money are, are few
0: I think that's it it's interesting because on one hand you could argue that there are more um places to show documentaries and more of an appetite for documentary than ever and at the same time the funding sources are fewer it's a tricky bit
3: it's one of the kind of interesting kind of debates that seem to be going on in the community within the last year or two is that I think there are some funders that are saying hey let's pull our resources together and fund actually fewer films and just put together more you know funds towards Um, A select few group. And, um, you know, as a filmmaker, I guess, uh, you know, if you're one of the lucky ones that get the jackpot, it's nicer that you're able to get a larger amount of money. But I think that um, it actually kind of dilutes some of the possibilities for all the different kind of creative ideas are out there. And to be honest, I mean, um, you know, documentaries are a little bit of a gamble in the sense of, you know, what, how's the story going to develop? And I think, you know, um, the kind of more, um, this idea of where you kind of like, Kind of spread your bets around probably works out better, not just, um, you know, for funders, but I think all just for the kind of creativity in the documentary community. So hopefully that this kind of pattern of, uh, you know, resources being pulled to um, towards a select few films uh, won't be the direction that things go.
2: Well, I think, you know... W- one really important piece about documentary is trying to share a diversity of voices, right? And so what's great about Doc NYC is that 40% of the filmmakers are women. Um, but I think that what happens when funding gets uh, prioritized to a few different people, um, rather than spread around, as Chris was talking about, that the diversity is reduced as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's another reason why we should be kind of pushing for... Um, a broader sharing of some of those financial resources. That's a very Canadian perspective.
1: <laughs> no, that's that's the right perspective. I mean, I would totally agree with that. I think that there's I mean, you look in it's in, it's interesting even in the doc community, which is one of the most progressive that there is, the issues of diversity are extremely, you know, are sort of, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of people and from communities that are kind of underserved, you know, that are not given access to funding and, you sure, know. Sure,
0: and if you can com- but then if you compare it to the rest of the media field, it's like wildly diverse. <laughs> (laughs) We've all got a long way to go. And I I like that we've gotten very macro here, but I'm going to bring us back micro um, and sort of wrap in all these issues, but just with your specific films. So as we can already sort of tell from this conversation, no two films get made the same way and there's not a formula, especially now. Um, So back to this idea of what does a producer do and kind of what are the steps? So starting with this first step, this funding step, what happens at the early stages for funding and also research pre-production what's happening sort of at the very beginning of a film's life doc film's life in your
1: world it's interesting i would say for what i what i have you know learned is that over time is that there are grants for development you know there's now grants that that um, certain organizations are putting out and that you can actually you know, like sundance also chicken and egg has a development grant for for women um, in particular it's called the i believe in you grant <laughs> which i thought was you know the name is like the name makes me laugh but it's it's great <laughs> you know it's exactly what's needed it's the first money in you know which is uh, which is always the hardest is the first person to actually put their money into your project right is the it's sort of Takes the biggest risk, so um, so they so I what I've what I have now tried to do with projects that are independent and not commissioned, is really get access to or, or, you know, try to make use of those development grants and for up to apply for as many as possible. Because I do think the rut that we get into often is putting our own money in, our own time in, unfortunately, you know, to what is technically should be a business venture. And um, and we get ourselves into a hole that way. Uh, and, then the, the, and then we are constantly at a deficit, like constantly trying to work our way out of a debt. But so, you know, my biggest suggestion to everyone is really, and, and if you are not receiving those grants, or if you are pitching and and not getting the funding then there's something you know you, that it's also a process of, by which you can learn about the story you're trying to tell and you know how it's working for people or not working for people and and it's it's sort of a testing ground for your project anyways so
2: well i actually teach a course in funding and financing so it's 14 weeks long it goes wow. into like every single little piece of information um, at the college level in Toronto. Um, But for me, I do. I kind of break all of the rules that I teach my students. Right, so as soon as I get the first money, then I start shooting. Mm-hmm. I don't wait for all of the money to be committed, um, and I just kind of hold my breath and hope like hell that I'm going to be able to finish the film. So far, that has worked out
3: for me, but it's not a method that I would recommend at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think we probably uh, we probably all break the rules that we might be suggesting today at the back uh, on the podcast. Um, you know, uh, one of the first things you know, I often see that, you know, myself and my uh, co-producers do is that, you know, we'll write a proposal. And the proposal is uh, to apply for some of these grants uh, for development and, um, and then kind of for future funding ideas. But in reality, I kind of see writing the proposal as an, a creative exercise in the sense of like uh, kind of putting out what's your vision for the film and what makes you passionate about it. Um, Often that proposal, I find, gets kind of then just shelved away and then you go and start making the film. But I see that writing exercise is really good of just kind of creating a framework for what you want to do. And it also allows you to Um, kind of workshop how you want to communicate this idea to other people Um, you know often I think the final films are very much different than what the initial proposals are or even you know often what you get funded for Um, but I think that's usually the first sake because it gives you some structure to then start to reach out and um, you know uh, develop the context for the people that you want to film with and also some of these initial funders Um, I think one of the kind of um, key things you'd mentioned is this idea of um sending out these proposals is really to kind of get also feedback. So I mean it's always nice when you get money, but also um you know a lot of funders are nice at least in regards to giving some minimal feedback or if you're not getting funding um you know you're and you see what else they fund. You know you, I think you can kind of put two and two together about um you know, where your project uh, might need to be stronger or even just the idea of recognizing where your film fits in the marketplace. It doesn't mean that your film's bad or you shouldn't go make it, but you need to be realistic of like when, you're, when your mindset is to create a passion project, the idea is that sometimes you have to carve out a space for that film out there. There might not already be you know a need or a want uh, for it.
1: I think, I just want to say, I think that you're absolutely right. You know, that what's what's really interesting is that it's sort of that testing ground, right? It gives you, it's a reflection of the market and, and what people want. And this also applies to, because because not only can you pitch your proposal to grants, you know, or to foundations, et cetera, you can also pitch to distributors. And oftentimes, you know, they'll say like the responses you will get are amazing. Like I've I've had, you know, I've had, uh, distributors tell me we don't do subtitled films. You know we don't do. You know we're not interested in an inter- international story. You know we don't do like they. They have. You know I've even I've even heard things that are almost so terrible that like I, <laughs> I don't want to repeat them. But it's you know like that one. I was actually told I had a story that took place in Africa, and I was told by a distributor that there was Africa fatigue, and that was the most heartbreaking. You know, but it's like you hear things that you cannot believe but but it's really important to hear them because you get a sense of how Kind of brutal it can be, and also, you know, if you're if you're going to have to fight for this project, it prepares you for that. But then mm. the other thing you hit on that I think is really important is you mentioned that the film that you write the proposal for is often not the film that you make ultimately. And it, it's my my mentor is Sam who's Sam Pollard. He's like the, the great Sam Pollard. He he taught me that there were there's three films. There's the film you conceive. There's the film you shoot, and then there's a film you edit, and they're all different. And they like by the end you have something a completely different animal than you started out with. But um,
0: I love that I feel like it's kind of the theme of this episode actually like we're going through those phases so also in that what else is happening in pre-production for a doc we're talking about funding we're talking about conceiving the idea obviously there's other things what about research what about um, accessing your characters What, what kind of things are going on in those really early stages for you. Well, I usually do some kind of a trailer. So I'll go and
2: I'll start shooting and I'll try to put something together. And, you know, I think that's kind of just a different way other than the treatment, which I do write as well, of kind of conceiving what the film will be. And we work that trailer like through the whole process over and over again um, to just try to play with things. And because I haven't raised all the money, right, so I'm always updating it to try to sell. Um, So that's one kind of hands-on thing that I do that I feel is – is a part of the research and a part of kind of figuring out how to work with my crew as well on this different project and potentially even te- testing out different directors of photography to see mm-hmm. um, if they're right for that project because each project that I do is very stylistically different one to the other so I can't always work with the same team.
3: Well it's it's interesting you mentioned the kind of funding trailer you know the trailers that I've always found that to be like the biggest challenge you know in the sense that like the trailer never fits what like what our vision for the film is, you know, and you always feel like it's just kind of embarrassing, you know, where you're like, <laughs> I really don't want to go share this with funders or people are like, what's this project you're working on? And I mean, I think it's a really good exercise. It's just one of those things where um, I think I'm, I don't think I've ever been very successful in funding um, at the early stages of, of a film because. The films that we often make are often kind of more kind of like, uh, you know, character driven, but also very uh, de- defined by the environment in the sense of like just a couple days of shooting, you know, or a couple weeks of shooting just does not give you enough material to like kind of break out of this kind of feeling that it's one note. I think when you deal with something that's very kind of subject or social issue wise, you can kind of push the issue Um But um, that just doesn't happen to be kind of the films that myself and my partners have often uh, kind of gravitated towards. Um, However, with the of unusual size, we tried to kind of uh, flip it a little bit in the sense that we did decide to do a crowdfunding campaign uh, via Kickstarter and Typically, I would probably suggest folks to wait to kind of fund until much later in the process. But uh, we were based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Our film was, was in Louisiana. Um, it was going to be kind of expensive to travel and be able to shoot. And so um, after a couple days of doing some character development and some filming, we went back and we had enough footage be, that we felt we could put together a Kickstarter trailer, which is, you know, obviously much um more defined uh, than a regular funding trailer. And so we'd built up enough goodwill with previous projects that we felt that we could kind of embrace this kind of patron sort of system of like, hey, you liked our previous films. This one kind of fits in this in vein, uh, vein, and do you want to kind of help us get to Louisiana to do this? And um, that worked out uh, very successfully for Rodents of Unusual Size. Um, but what I found is that that was a trailer that was much easier to make that was very tailored to more of a, a general audience um, than, I guess, traditional funders.
0: That's interesting, that idea of of a different trailer for funders than for audiences. Mm. So then you're moving from, okay, maybe you've got a little pocket of funding you're going to start production. And here's where I think every single, and Shanda, you sort of hinted at this, every single film you make is going to vary wildly in terms of the production process. Chris is here traveling from San Francisco to Louisiana. Gita is based in New York and the film's in Pakistan. Shanda's in Toronto or films in New York. So in this particular film, what was the production process like? How many years were you shooting? What kind of teams did you build?
1: I mean, I would say for Armed with Faith, we, I had a, my producer, Sharmino Obaye mm-hmm. and, um, and she was my co director on a previous film we had done called A Journey of a Thousand Miles Peacekeeper. And the film was actually conceived of and brought to us by our camera person, um, Asad Faruqi, who was, he worked with us on the same film that, that I mentioned, A Journey of a Thousand Miles Peacekeepers. And when we were working together on that, he he was based in Karachi, so he brought us the, some footage that he had been shooting, and again, he just, again, his own money, he'd gone out and gotten some material and said, what do you think? And we were, Charmaine and I found it incredibly compelling. It's a, a story that kind of shatters the Stereotypes that are generated by the Western media and particularly this administration around the Muslim community and um, and it really showcased some Pakistani heroes on the ground you know doing everything they could to combat extremism in their home country so so what we uh, I think our next step for us was actually building, it's interesting, I'm taking it back a little bit, but what we did was we built, we built um scenes. Like we shot, we had some scenes and we built like what we called a development reel, which showcased the characters and then some scenes for them. So it wasn't quite a trailer, but it's something that we felt like, you know, we didn't feel we had enough material to make a trailer, but it was something that could at least introduce the characters and the topic. And, and from there we were able to get funding. Um, but for us, I think what was really important is that Assad and I co-directed. Assad was mostly on the ground because as a Pakistani man, he had far more access to this very to these men who, although they are in some ways progressive, they're from a very conservative community, and they would not have had me running around after them, <laughs> you know, in the field. And so, you know, even to uh, go home with them, for example, Assad was not allowed to shoot with their wives. We had to get a Pakistani woman who was in full. Burka when she was when when she was interviewing the wives and then we could not even show the the women's faces so it was very it was it was delicate and complicated I am both Indian and an American citizen of Indian origin and an American citizen so and this is you know a sensitive topic so so there were barriers and there were even barriers for Sharmeen. Who is a Pakistani-based, very well-known? She's a two-time Academy Award winner, so you know she's a celebrity in Pakistan. But it's still very complicated for her. So Assad was really um, key to having on the ground, and then I think the way that and Sharmeen was able to produce from Pakistan, I was able to produce from here, and then the, we split the work as far as the creative process, and that he was in the field, and I completely handled post and the edit. And you know, obviously, we were sharing footage and going back and forth and talking about what scenes we needed to get and what was lacking and and um and so that's how our process worked for this film because it was in such a sensitive region
0: and over over what period of time was he shooting um we shot for about three years okay and then was he regularly sending you material and you were regularly editing or did you wait until you had a big pool of stuff we i was
1: regularly reviewing the material for sure and um, and we would, you know, like I said, we would build scenes and, re- and sort of update a funding, you know, a funding reel as we called it. But we waited until we had the funding from ITV's. You know, like once we had a big enough money to actually bring on an editor and schedule the edit. And once we were closer to the end of production, we knew we were, you know, we were sort of done. But even then, after that, there's always some pickups. I'm sure you guys experience this too, but you feel like, you know, you edit your film and then you're like, oh no, or like I'm missing this or that, and you end up going back. So, but um, but yeah, basically we didn't really start the full-on edit. And, and, and some of the benefit is I'm also, I'm trained as an editor, I direct, but I'm also trained as an editor. So I was able to, you know, I was able to kind of double for the funding reels. I would go through the footage, I could put it together, you know. Um, again, wearing many hats is is a you know a typical thing in this process
3: well and I, and I think that brings up an interesting ideas. I think with these kind of more passion projects, often uh producers usually feel – um you know, one or more roles. And so in the sense of like, you know, I'm lucky enough to have, um, you know, regular collaborators that, you know, we direct and, you know, I might produce and they might edit, you know, or they might shoot or maybe we all produce and, you know, direct. And so I think um, this kind of like being able to wear many hats is something that you'll find in many independent documentaries. And um, it's interesting you mentioned this kind of funding uh, reel of, you know, many different scenes. I think overall, as a producer, I've you know, those are the sorts of reels that often are the most successful to fund because they're representative of the way that you might kind of tell your narrative. I mean, scenes are more reflective of what the final film might be than like an actual trailer. And so I think often people get really focused on these kind of hype reels or kind of like, you know, teaser trailers, um, because that's often what we see in the marketplace for like narrative films. But, um, you know, many documentary funds funders want to be able to see scenes and then kind of scenes about establish your character and how are you building uh, this narrative.
0: So Shanda, what about your production process
2: on this film? Yeah, so this film was really different for me. So it's a cinema verite film. So it's purely observational. There are little kind of in situ interviews. um, But My films before that were always really structured, like almost scripted. You know, I had an argument. I'm a social issues filmmaker, so I had an argument that I was trying to make. And I made that argument through very tightly constructed scenes and stories. And I didn't want to do this this time. I wanted to just follow the story as it was unfolding. Um... And it was really hard for me, <laughs> really hard, because I like to really plan. And, you know, I was making shot lists in the beginning and going down. And then, of course, I couldn't execute my shot list. So eventually we just kind of started running and gunning and really getting into it. Um, but I did play a few. I did wear a few different hats as well, because at some point I had run out of money. And so I started going down myself and just shooting the footage myself, which is um really intimidating because I'm not a great shooter and before that I was working with someone who was a great shooter. Um, so that was a challenge. but in the end we had uh, 50 different shoots, no 50 different days of shooting, 30 different separate trips, 200 hours of footage, not including archives um, and it was a it was a beast of a project on many levels but um, uh, but really, empowering in a, in a new way, right? Stepping into a different kind of production process was exciting and um, delightful and really uh, reflected the story that I was telling, too, because it was the kind of story, will they ban fracking? Won't they ban fracking? Will her husband have a s- another stroke? Won't he? Um, so we were living in the moment and telling the film that way as well.
0: There was a lot at stake. Yeah, there was a lot
2: at stake um, for Sandra and for, you know, everyone in New York who wanted a ban on fracking.
0: Yeah. And Chris, I'm really fascinated by the production process for <laughs> rodents because I'm, I don't know if anyone has seen the film, but I mean, there's a lot of, of rat footage. I mean, this is, some, <laughs> this is not the kind of thing you see every day. Um, so I want to hear about the the production process uh, in the way we've heard from these two, but also just how the hell did you get some of that material of like the rats underground and in their little <laughs> tunnels?
3: Yeah. Um. Well I guess kind of take through the process so um, you know, we spent about four years making Rodents of Unusual Size, and I think the kind of like producer role, um, you know, during the making of the film, outside of, you know, seeking funding and financing, this is kind of managing the creative vision that we'd kind of, you know, myself and my partners had established, and so to make sure, it kept, you know, things keep on track, you know, um, uh, reaching out and kind of, um, ours is kind of a more vignette-based uh, film. We have one main character, Thomas Gonzalez, who's kind of, you know, fighting the rats back in his community, but we also wanted to show the... The different ways that um, the this invasive species, the nutria, have been kind of embraced by many people in Louisiana, and so it's about kind of identifying people that kind of fit the topic, but also. Um, would be make an interesting story. Um, so I think a lot of the producers role is like kind of project management in the sense of like uh, making sure that you have the access that you need when you want it uh, since we're filming on location away from where we're based, um, making these trips to Louisiana as efficient and productive as possible. Um, obviously uh, when you' we're filming outdoors often with hunters and trappers and so you're dealing with uh, the mix of weather and the other things that kind of come into a play. Um, And then at some point in time, as your kind of film starts to gel, I think, you know, your role as a producer is just kind of step back from the role as director and say, hey, guys, you know, I think we have a skeleton of a film here. Let's start kind of filling out the holes. We can't make this movie forever. And I think, you know, all three of us kind of agreed that it's just that sometimes you have to kind of, you know, just, um, you know you know kind of determined together it's like okay how do we get to the finish line you know because i think the first half of making a film is really about just kind of embracing the journey and discovery and then you know kind of the producing hat comes on and saying okay uh we need to kind of figure out an endpoint for the journey um I guess uh, looping back to your question about all these rats is that uh, – mm-hmm. so thankfully enough, these uh, giant swamp rats, these nutria, they weigh about 20 pounds. And uh, <laughs> there's millions of them in southeastern uh, Louisiana. So uh, it's not hard to find them. Uh, and uh, But I think the biggest challenge is that they're semi-aquatic so they live in the wetlands. So we needed to be able to get out, <laughs> uh, out on boats. And uh, the people of Louisiana are very uh, – friendly and kind of welcome us with open arms of kind of bringing us out as they went and killed uh, hundreds of these during the day. And so a lot of it is kind of a testament to my co-director and our cinematographer, Jeff Springer, uh, because he had to kind of go out there and um, kind of capture wildlife as it's happening. And I think anybody that's ever tried to shoot animals um, filmmaking wise, not with a gun, is that uh, <laughs> they move fast and you don't know where they're going to want to be. So he spent a lot of time out on boats uh, going out by himself and you know our characters to just kind of be patient and kind of capture these moments and um and then later on because the new trio these rats are kind of in some ways one of our main characters uh we wanted to get up and close and personal and so uh he spent a lot of times like setting up little uh tents to kind of hide and wait for the animals to come close and so i mean he spent days and weeks uh just kind of uh trying to create these gorgeous shots you know um of just you know you know, just waiting for that kind of right moment. Um, you'd asked about these kind of, this kind of tunnel, such situ- we've, we have this uh, kind of credit sequence in the film uh, where you see the nutrias down these tunnels. And so, um, he, uh, Jeff, and uh, one of our characters, Michael Buran, uh talked to some different kind of National Geographic filmmakers of like, how do you kind cre- create these setups? And so, uh, both uh, Jeff and Michael went to Walmart and Home Depot and created this elaborate setup. And lucky enough, we found a uh, a trained nutria. There, uh, there's this Milken Farms in um, <laughs> in Louisiana, and they have all these animals they've trained for um, you know Hollywood movies. And they happen to have a pet nutria. And so Jeff and Michael, nudie the nutria. Uh, so Jeff and Michael. Uh, went and spent a couple of days building the setup and then filming Nudie doing her thing.
0: Boy, I mean, like I said, every film gets made differently. That is a pretty wild story. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, our listeners have to see all three of these films, hands down. But you've kind of probably never seen anything like these. Not only are they 20-pound rats, but they have huge, bright orange buck teeth. It's a thing. It's a thing to see. Anyway.
3: <laughs> the New York City sewer rats don't have anything on them. <laughs> oh, my Lordy.
0: God. Lordy. Um, so, so, Chris, you kind of were, were pointing to this you know, this idea that a lot of these phases blend together. So you're still on the journey. Then you're starting to think about post. And probably from early on, you're, you were already starting to think about distribution to some extent. So now... Now we've moved into this third-ish phase of post. Um, gita it sounds like your post was happening all along. But how, what's the, what's the rap? Like, how do you get to that rap stage or that, that in the can stage?
1: I think the the critical thing is that as you're building, again, this, you know, for us in this film, at least, um, is that as you get closer and closer to sort of a completion, you know, a point where you know you, you're you wrapping production is you start more aggressively seeking your post production funding. Ideally, you have a, a reel, you know, a development reel that, you know, it has more, more material in it that's, that, that showcases the arc of your film. And again, an arc is incredibly important to that, that it's a good story is incredibly important to any distributor or financier. Or, you know, even foundations, they want to know that that this is something that has legs. And just as important as, as even if, you know, obviously the social issue of a social justice issue documentary is in, is incredibly is critical, but that it's a good story and that audiences will want to watch and be receptive to, that will generate interest and empathy and that's entertaining and education, all those things matter tremendously. And so, what we found is, we, you know, we basically put together like a 20-minute reel, um, which was somewhat sequential, you know, for our characters. And that is what we sent to ITVS. And we created a budget that, you know, that that basically detailed our expenses and what we needed to complete um, editing. And they that's what they came on board with. Uh, it's never enough, I want to say. Whatever you think your budget is for editing, you should always... <laughs> double it because because it always goes longer particularly even if if when you're working with a distributor i mean itvs weighs in so they have notes that you you don't necessarily expect and so there's a back and forth and you you must account for that and you also uh so i think and even if you don't get that amount of money you should at least know that that's what the, the amount of money actually is um and we i think a lot of us don't pay ourselves you know a lot of filmmakers we just you know we pay ourselves last and that's you know that's also a painful part of this process but ideally you should should factor yourself into the budget you know in an ideal world you would do that um and you know and and have a realistic sense of what it's really going to take um so that's what we did so for our film essentially ITBS came on board and that allowed us to finish our edit process and to bring on a seasoned editor uh, there's always this, this question too I think sometimes of bringing on um, the type of edit team that you bring on and a seasoned editor is obviously more expensive uh, than a junior editor maybe but a seasoned editor will also possibly go through the material quicker so you, know, you have to sort of make the decisions about who you're comfortable with and who you want to work with and a lot of people usually have someone. But um, we had a great editor on this film, Flavia de Souza, and she's really like a co-producer. In 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 documentary film, I find, and maybe it's because I came from editing, I feel this way. But but you know, the the editor is really like a co-director or a co-producer. You know, they're they're so creative in telling. They're, they're so important to the creative process, I should say, of telling the story. So I have to shout her out for that. Um, and and I was able to, you know, we were really able to trust her with the process. And she was, you know, very good at what she does. So and that's how we came to to finish the film.
0: And Chris, you were saying you, you had to decide sort of, well, when is this done? So what was that process like?
3: Uh, yeah, so I think, um, so one of the unique things with... Um, you know, our film was that it's kind of very vignette-y, you know, and so in the sense that while we had this kind of through line following our character Thomas, um, the idea is like, you know, how do these vignettes kind of work together? I mean, in, at some point in time, you can have like too many random characters or too many random scenes. And so <clears throat> I think, you know, once we kind of figured out what the kind of narrative arc was the, of Thomas, we kind of then started moving the vignettes around to kind of see how uh, it worked out. And I think, you know, this is kind of a testament to um, my co-director and our editor, um, Quinn Costello, in the sense that, you know, um, you know, given the kind of creative role that the editor plays and also as a co-director is that, you know, he was willing to kind of continue to dig in and just say, OK, here's five different ways we can kind of do it. And so we had the luxury of kind of exploring all our options because in the end, the three of us, we wanted to kind of make the best film possible. And so um, once we agreed – what that kind of basic you know, arc was a lot of it was figuring out how do we want to kind of fill in the holes? I think, um, you know, in the sense of like, well, we need somebody here to kind of create a transition to this other scene. And so that might be say, Hey Jeff, you know, uh, there was this great um, Louisiana fur and wildlife festival going on and we just found out about it. And it was just like, we, I think we all agreed. It's like, okay, we need this story to kind of transition to, um, this kind of kind of fur collective that's kind of trying to create, um, you know, fashion out of fur. And so Jeff was just like, okay, I'm going to go jump on a plane. I'm going to go film this, you know, fur and wildlife festival. And so, you know, Quinn and I were just like, okay, let's see if we can get access. And next, you know, um, it just became a very important scene in the film. I think a lot of it is this idea of, um, so thinking about trying to finish up the film, there's the kind of creative process of wanting to make the best film that you can, but there are these outside factors. You know, obviously, funding, you know, ITVS delivery dates, um, when grant applications are. But I think the whole festival cycle winds up playing. Um, a role in your decision-making in the sense of, like, how long is it going to take us for the film? When we finish it up? What are the kind of top-tier festivals that are going to, you know, uh, be of use? I think often um, within the filmmaking community, often I see a lot of films kind of rust to the finish line to kind of, like, deliver um, you know, for the Sundance submission deadline and kind of see if uh, your lottery ticket is punched that way. Uh, with our film, uh, because we'd received these ITVS funds, we just decided that um, we kind of create a schedule of what worked out best creatively for the film and then kind of see... Um, where we're at in the festival cycle and it just um, th- synced up really really well for Doc NYC and um, we also had to consider when our TV broadcast was we knew that our TV broadcast could be as early as uh, this next spring and we wanted to definitely hit the festival cycle um, to be able to get the film out in front of audiences but also for marketing and so um, it wasn't you know, possible just to kind of wait another year um, so I think a lot of it is just kind of taking being aware of how these different things kind of work together and then kind of make a collective decision of you know, what's the best for the process.
0: And uh, it's funny, we've sort of gotten ourselves up to festival season because we'll, we'll wrap soon since Shanda's literally running from this booth to her <laughs> film's premiere screening today. But do you want to tell us about your uh, post-process a little bit? Sure. I mean, initially, um, what we were going to do is
2: I was going to go down about once a month to shoot, come back, and then we would edit that footage together. We would kind of build the film as we went. Uh, but the editor that I had planned on working with just ended up not having the availability for that because it's really challenging tasks someone to work on something for a week or two and then go off it for a couple weeks and then come back. Um, So in the end, I just kind of amassed all this footage and then waited. uh, And we stopped shooting in like mid 2015. Uh, But then I just kind of sat on the footage for a while. I think I was in like a little bit traumatized or something from the experience, in a a good way. I was just very tired. Um, And then I ended up hiring a great editor named Nick Hector, who's worked on about 30 feature docs and 100 TV docs, and worked with the legendary Alan King on his very taste stuff in the last years of his life. Um, And so Nick and I just sat down and we watched all of the footage together. So we spent eight weeks doing that. And having, yeah, it was, it was incredible, you know, and having this, these kind of deep conversations about all of the footage and what it meant and what my character was trying to do and um by the end of that just watching the footage we we basically knew what the film would be and how it would fit together uh and then we just started building it so he would work on it for a week and then I'd come back and sit with him on Friday and we'd watch the footage and talk about it and I'd go away and come back it was like the most pleasant experience of my life really (laughs) Um, and you know uh And it was, yeah, it was just really, it felt easy and it came together in a lot of ways differently than my other projects had Um, because I think what Gita said is true. You know, when you hire a really experienced editor it makes a tremendous difference they're faster their sense of narrative is so strong Nick was able to you know I said what about doing this and he could say we can't do that because of this we wouldn't actually have to try it which with a more junior editor we would have had to try it out Um, so we saved a lot of time in the end because he was um, just such an amazing person to work with and knew his craft so
3: well. You know um, not to kind of go back in the process but Um, There's something you mentioned that kind of inspired me to mention is that this idea of like watching, you know, footage, uh, you know, in the edit is that I think one of the roles of a producer during production, you know, often is to kind of see the big picture when they're on set, you know. So as a director, when uh, whether you're operating camera or doing the interviews, you're very much in the moment, you know, and so – You know, with my team, I was lucky enough that, you know, all three of us are are directing and producing together. And so we'd kind of all swap out different roles. And so, but when you're kind of on set as a producer, kind of you know, being the observer, you know, you're seeing how is what's going on here fitting into the larger picture? You can allow, you know, whoever's directing that scene or shooting the scene to kind of focus on the micro aspect. And so I think the, you know, the producer's role often throughout the entire process is the macro aspect of like, how do all these different things that you're getting in these different situations kind of come together? And so then in the edit, you know, um, if there's always somebody on set that has that producer role, then you can say, hey, well, you know, while that shoot was happening, actually... Yeah, you thought this was what was going on while you're directing. But and so it's always kind of nice to just kind of have that, uh, you know, I guess that producer's perspective, you know, as you're going through this kind of post process as well.
0: I think that's a really great point. Yeah. Um, So final question. We've talked a lot about how every project is different. Every film is different. Every process is different. Shooting in different countries is different, but I'm wondering for you personally, is there something that's fundamentally the same about how you approach work, even like a ritual that you do, or you know, is there some thread in your own producing life?
3: Well, I mean, I think uh, you know, mindset-wise, I think is that you know, you know, any independent documentary project is kind of a leap of faith, you know, and the idea is that you know enough about how these things work together that. You don't know what that final puzzle is, but the idea is that uh, you have the kind of resources or stamina uh, to be able to do it. And Maybe that's the key is like uh, the stamina in the sense that knowing that, you know, this project that you love so much at the beginning that you'll fall out of love with it several times over the making of it <laughs> and that you will, you know, kind of have the verve and nerve to kind of be able to refall in love with it again and be able to kind of keep even those times when you hate it, that you'll continue to kind of push it along uh, because you'll be able to. I guess, rediscover that love in, you know, in some way. And so um, I think that's the, the, the aspect is that you the emotion is what kind of gets you started in the film, but it's not the emotion that kind of, I guess, um, carries you through the day. It's the kind of more pragmatic aspect of like saying, okay, well, there's a film here. It's not going to be worth this, but the ceiling is basically uh, infinite, I guess. And so the idea is that you're going to work your ass off to kind of see how high you can get it.
1: I think I would say for me, and it's maybe a creative exercise more than a like producerial. but I think because I come from narrative originally, I started in narrative, um, that I always try to really research the story and figure out if there is truly a if it is a verite film, a cinema verite film, because with a historical film, it's a whole different thing. Right. You can write it out. You you know, it's archival based. It's stocking head, et cetera, et cetera. So some of the projects I've worked on have been that. And in some way, there's an arc that already happened and you know it. So it's just about how you make it interesting and new to people. Um, uh, so, So that's. You know, that's a question. The, but for a cinema verite film, I think what's so complicated is you don't necessarily know the outcome unless it has an organic arc. or Unless you know that you're following these people for a year and they're going, they're, they're, they're trying to achieve a certain goal. Or there is an organic, you know, like for instance, on my film, A Journey of a Thousand Miles Peacekeepers, we were following an all Muslim unit of women who were deployed as UN peacekeepers for one year. So it was about their journey for that year, and it had an organic time frame. But um, I think I try to research the story as much as possible and picture it as a narrative. In some ways, like if this was, what is the what is the story here? What are, what will my characters go through? What is the arc? How do I get in and out? And and also, what differentiates this from a news piece? Mm. That is really critical to me because the idea of you know. Is this, is this really just like a 10 minute thing that can be summarized? Why do I need to, when I was, of course, when I was first starting out, I would pick up, I'd be happy to pick up a camera and chase someone around for like five years, kind of aimlessly, but now I, I realize that that doesn't make a film. You know, you can follow someone for 10 years and nothing can happen in a verite film. So it's really like to know the markers of what you're leading up to, you know, what is the potential end, I think is critical. Yeah, that's key.
2: I think for me, the the kind of constant thing that I try to keep in mind is that there is no constant thing, right? Like each project that I take on, I'm trying to push myself creatively in some way. I have a new message that I want to deliver or a new story that I want to tell. And so really focusing on um, that It's you know it's its own this film is its own thing it's it's built upon my previous work but it's this new thing and I'm trying a new way of doing things so keeping that in mind and trying not to be terrified in the moment because if you're doing something new for the first time you really have no clue um, what or that's how I feel anyway I feel like I have no clue what I'm doing most of the time Um, but reminding myself that that is what I've set up for my like that's what I want to do I want to be in that kind of terror, ecstasy kind of moment, right? So that's where I am in my work. Um, But there is one constant that I have noticed in my work, and that Uh, constant is that it's a creative one and it's that I'm always trying to tell women's stories. Uh, And it took me a long time to figure out that that's what I was doing, uh, but I figured it out in this film, in the making of this film. Um, And so, you know, I really think um, for me, you know, kind of going back to second wave feminism, the personal is the political. And I feel that so deeply in my work. And so that's the creative uh, line that I see for myself where I'm telling women's stories that are personal, but they have a larger, deeper political Uh, importance. And so that's been my guiding light um, in the past few weeks. So (laughs) it'll continue um, now that I've figured that out.
3: That's beautiful.
1: Really, <laughs> I think that's a theme, though. Interesting. Like, I think that for you know, I mean, it's funny. Documentary film is not obviously limited to that, but I think it's what a lot of us are drawn to. I too am drawn to you know this again, the social justice issue, challenging stereotypes and racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia. Like, every, you know, those are so. Sort of, I think social justice. We're all a little bit of that. You know, we have that in us, and 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 it's why we're drawn to documentary.
3: Well, you yeah, know, it makes me think. Having both you said is that, you know kind of tie it back into that kind of producer's thing is that I think being self-aware of um, the sorts of topics and subject matter uh, that you're drawn to and how your overall filmography kind of joins together is really important in your pitches to funders because, you know, funders aren't just funding subjects or funding really great stories. They're also funding artists, you know. And so the idea is that, you know, if this is part of your artistic uh, repertoire, for lack of a better word, you know, um, and how this current film fits into your previous works, it allows them to have some faith that you're going to be able to finish this film, you know, and it's not going to be, you're not remaking the previous film, but the idea is that thematically, uh, how this fits within your kind of, um, uh, your process it, you know allows them to, it, basically when you're talking to a funder, right you're trying to reduce the number of risks that they see in a film as possible and your familiarity with the topic or your passion or have you've been able to do it before um, you know helps out especially if it fits within uh, this kind of thematic journey you are on as a, a filmmaker.
0: Well Chris, I love that you, Uh, wrapped us up by by putting on that macro producer's hat and that's a great point so this was fascinating thank you each so much and I'm really uh, eager to see the progress of your films and how they get out there and get responded to thank you thank Thank you for having us yeah
3: thanks for having us Liz
0: thank you for listening you can hear lots of other fascinating conversations on the art of filmmaking by finding the No Film School podcast on iTunes Make sure to subscribe there or on your favorite podcast app so you can catch our Indie Film Weekly News Show, which comes out every Thursday morning and fills you in on everything you might have missed when you were busy making films. Also, be sure to visit NoFilmSchool.com for useful new articles every single day. Meanwhile, stay in touch. You can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm and we are on Twitter at NoFilmSchool. See you on Thursday.